Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I am joined by James Wong. James, thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you, James. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Pleasure to have you. Can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you wanted to come on to the podcast today? Yeah, sure thing. Well, you know, my name's uh, James Wong and I um, currently work for an organisation called Abana Brothers and we're you know, absolutely committed to helping our troubled young men in, um, in our communities find a better way of, of growing up in, in, uh, in, in their lives, really. And a lot of that's around um, searching for, you know, what, what it means to be a man in current times. And the way we work is, is that we, we sort of connect, inspire and encourage older men in their communities to take responsibility for the problem of young male disaffection. And the way that's, uh, that happens is around a mentoring and rites of passage programme. So it's a way to connect with the young men and help them take the next steps in their lives towards healthy, healthy masculinity, towards healthy manhood and to move away from a life of crime um, and basically, you know, create a life that's good for them and, and good for others too. I remember going to one of the first open evenings and hearing a bit around the, uh, you know, what was on offer, what was going on and what was, what was called for, what they were asking of older men in the community and there was just something which happened at that meeting which just struck a chord with me and I waited a couple of weeks after that initial that initial encounter and something was still with me and it was just this it was just this sense of wow I think I've been missing this in my life so it's been a gradual sort of discovery for me that um, got me and kept me interested and and has me um, totally totally committed today. Fantastic, well, beautiful answer. Thank you very much. I love that idea that you felt like you were pulled there by intuition and gut, as opposed to intellect or necessarily personal experience. I think what it was, I was battling then, and I didn't quite realise at the time, but I had a deep rooted mistrust of people and men. And I think what I experienced on that first evening. It was just a glimmer of, oh, just, just perhaps I, I could take the risk of entering into this. And so perhaps there's something uh, about the men which I, I trusted enough to, to, you know, to say to myself, yep, I, I think um, I'm going to go through with this. And I think, don't think I quite realised it back then, but um, have grown to understand the impact of, of that um, deep-rooted uh, mistrust in my life since then. Thank you for sharing that. I've said in previous episodes of the podcast that I often feel very conflicted as a gay man 
between loving men as a gay man you fall in love with men but also having that real distrust and dislike for men as it's usually the men who were homophobic to you when you were at school and it's usually world leaders who are male who are homophobic within the culture so there's that conflict between really feeling distrustful and disliking of something you also love uh so i know that's where my kind of distrust of a certain type of masculinity and certain type of man comes from do you know when you started applying for that program if you don't mind me asking where your distrust came from yeah so i how i understand that it and i think one of the core um events in my life that um that happened was was really it was uh, abuse when i was a baby so I think what that left me with was just a uh, a deep-rooted belief that the world was a dangerous place. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think that was at the crux of it, of just a, a total belief, as I guess a baby would, uh, having those sort of experiences, that the world is a, is, is a completely dangerous place. And I guess I would have associated that with with people at that time. And I'm just trying to think whether, you know, there are a number of occurrences growing up. I think um, perhaps later in life, I think some of the biggest disappointments I felt um, were around, you know, I'm half Chinese. And that was, um, you know, pretty clear in my case. I know some people who are mixed race, um, um, you know, have a particular sort of, uh, um, you know, a blend. But for me, you know, it was clear that I, I wasn't completely white. And I think, you know, there are a number of occurrences at school and growing up and with adults, um, I'd say, you know, particularly um, up to 20, where I experienced some racism. And, yeah, I, th I think that just left me not, I don't know, just not feeling welcome, really. <laughs> and, you know, I had my own share of uh, betrayal uh, I experienced with, with peers or people at school. and. Um, I think that compounded it. Can I ask you if it's okay to talk a little more then about childhood and your understanding of your masculinity and your racial identity, say about six years old? Yeah, I've, I've thought about this. Like, what was it like at six? And I think at six, I was just keen on playing. If I think back, that was my main thing. And I think about some of the the games I played then. I remember distinctly being competitive and it was with next door neighbors and we were playing um some sort of um some sort of game but i remember being acutely competitive around winning the affection of, of a of a girl who was one of our friends who we were playing with it was like i wanted to be yeah first in line you know for, for affection or for favor or for and i just remember being quite assertive and uh, uh, bullish at times just just wanting to play, really. I'm mean, trying to think, you know, what was it around being age six that uh, I can sort of see a key? What was it, you know, what did I take or what did I understand around gender roles? I, I think it might have been um, the dominant, the carer, that women were something to win over, perhaps. Um, that, that men or other males, you know, boys at that time, were competition. And I think, you know, certainly what was probably overriding any sort of or you know playing into any sort of gender influences at uh, that age were that I strove to be in control of my environment 
and I, that sort of helped me feel safe and secure in my environment. And I, you know, I draw that back to earlier experiences, uh, adverse, you know, experiences as a child. And when I think to to males, I think who are my role models? You know, I think you know the most prevalent person in my life was my mum. You know, she was the one who administered um, discipline. She was the authority in the house. And my dad, I remember as being somewhat absent, but he was, you know, certainly for me, a a caring and kind and playful, playful man. And I enjoyed his company and felt uh, totally safe in his company. Um, But then, you know, with hindsight, I reflect in a way my dad abdicated from everyday role of bringing us up or, uh, and, you know, fell to my mum to to be the authority in the house. And I guess my dad, he didn't step into that, not with me anyway. Um, so I, I guess that allowed a space for me to enjoy um, a slightly, yeah, a, a less pressured relationship with him, really. And I experienced that as kindness, playfulness and caring. That's a lovely thing to hear of learning, not learning a sense of that stereotypical toxic masculinity from parents in early childhood, but learning a sense of play and a sense of being caring. I don't know about you as well, but I think so much of my late 20s has been trying to return to that kind of six-year-old self who hadn't really learnt about gender, hadn't really learnt that much shame, was kind of just enjoying play. I've tried to get back to that person um, as much as I can in my work and in my life. Have you had a similar experience as you've got older, trying to return to that sense of play and uh, kind of unthinking being, if you like? Yeah, I do, actually, in in quite a significant way. And it's not something I uh, normally share uh, or talk about outside of really quite trusted and intimate circles. Please don't feel pressured to share anything on here that you don't feel comfortable sharing. But if you're happy to... I would love to listen. Okay. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you know, my little boy, as I, as I, you know, one name I have for him is, is something I, I connected to. Um, I was doing a counselling course about eight years ago and I began to connect um, to that, um, yeah, that sort of smaller part in me. And since then, um, through some of the personal development work I've done and actually quite in a lot within the Band of Brothers, I've learnt more about and built up sort of a, a, a newer relationship with that part of myself. And I must say that um, it's it's quite present in my life, um, you know, the sort of four, five, six-year-old. And, it, um, you know, I experience it as a beautiful, a beautiful thing and it's it's like I get to know myself back then. What was life for me back then? with the with the uncertainty with the you know the sort of relative you know really simple way of looking at life and the naivety and also just expression of some really basic needs you know just wanted um to be safe to be loved to have friends to play and was really quite um self-centered which is which is right for a six-year-old to be you know largely concerned with himself And I think what that has helped me do is understand how some of those behaviours or beliefs might still be present sort of in my in my um, in my adult consciousness. And I guess it's helping me grow up. And I must say it's a relationship I I enjoy having and I get a lot of um, comfort and um, and I think, yeah, a lot of sort of continuing healing that goes on. And also 
you know, just some compassion and empathy for not just for myself as a six-year-old, but just for people and, and you know, and young boys as, uh, as six-year-olds gives me an insight of, of remembering. So that's what it's like, you know, that's what it's like for some, for some of us. Thank you for sharing that, especially as you say, because you rarely share that with people outside of kind of close friendship circles. Uh, I think my experience is really, really similar in that sense of uh, my life was changed somewhat when someone said to me, it's never too old to have a child. You're never too old to have a childhood, meaning your childhood can happen at any age and that can happen in your 20s and you can kind of return to a place of, as you say, those kind of uh, boy-like qualities of needing friendship and safety and security as opposed to those more conventionally man-like qualities of a career and a car and a house and all those trappings that kind of build a fortress around that vulnerable kind of boy which is still in all of us really uh, so it, as ever one of the driving reasons I wanted to make this podcast is because you can feel so alone sometimes in your masculinity certainly as a gay man when you don't feel like you fit with an archetype of what it's supposed to, what you're supposed to be as a man so to hear other people uh, of different backgrounds, different ages, have similar experiences, incredibly moving to me, and I hope incredibly moving to listeners as well, that sense of you're not alone in your type of masculinity, other people have been through similar things. So what I would love to ask about now is how your relationship with masculinity and identity changed as you entered kind of that teenage time of being about 16. Um, were you still as unthinking about masculinity? Did you feel just as playful? Or had your character changed somewhat? Yeah, age 16 was, I guess, a lot of things were happening. I'd, I'd just moved past quite a difficult um, relationship break at 14 and also um, some, you know, suicidal thoughts also around that time. And also by the age of 16, I had, um, you know, discovered an interest in, in, um, in, in girls, in women and by 16, I'd had I'd had sex, and I must say that was quite a <laughs> quite quite a driving force for me, really. You know, I had a steady girlfriend at that time, so I guess and forming yeah relationship really, and I think you know particularly you know in those first relationships, it was around it was just like you know just going headlong head first into those encounters. And, and making lots of mistakes and finding out about myself. Looking back on it now, do you think that notion of going headlong into things was just being 16 and being a person? Or do you think there was an element of masculinity at work in that sense of act, don't reflect and think? I, th I think I know what happened, what began to happen. You know, I began to open up and I began to trust um, but I began to trust one person in a way which I hadn't trusted people before. And that was a lot to do with the bonding experience of a sexual relationship as well. Of course, you know, I had something like a prize and something also to protect in a way from other male suitors. So I think there was an element of, of wanting to, I guess, own or protect my relationship with that person. At the same time that I began to open up and that person became more important to me. But what I did realise is that I put all my eggs in one basket, which I continued to do for many years after that. And when I mean when I talk about my eggs in one basket, I mean sort of my emotional eggs, really. The person I would lean into or depend uh, on for, for comfort or understanding was largely one person, which was very difficult when there were tensions in those relationships. Yeah. 
so as looking at uh, lots of my friends and certainly lots of my past behaviors well i think kind of men and women have a tendency to do that don't they that sense of you will pop a lot of your self-worth into a relationship be that a professional one or an emotional physical one if you don't mind me asking and it's not triggering at all that sense of being a young man and you done that can i ask how you dealt with that relationship that first relationship that had been that first trusting relationship breaking down and ending yeah yeah i did i had quite a um quite a quite a dive after that actually i mean part of the the breakup was also my my want you know i sort of sense that's where i want to go um but i i um i really really missed that sort of affirmation of 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 self-worth really and just just having support that sort of someone who knew me as well as that person did and you know so that was gone the affirmation of me as a man yeah something around about if i'm if i'm not with a girl if i'm not having sex then what am i doing with my life it was like almost um you know because i i didn't fall easily into another relationship um following that one and i think i imagined that a man was someone who um slept with lots of women and um could you know actually the gauge for for masculinity was was how I was able to win or acquire or whatever a a partner in this you know in my case it was a female partner yeah so what did I do I just I think I had a I had a friend a flatmate and would speak to him about that sort of stuff I trusted him uh, he was a good friend of mine and he was a loyal friend and I trusted him but I guess you know we we were two young two young men <laughs> And I guess, you know, he didn't know much more than I did. And, you know, sort of thinking back, I, I didn't even think to... My, my dad died um, around that time, so my dad wasn't around. And, you know, even if my dad had been alive, I don't think he would have... Someone I could have turned to to talk about that. I think I might have shared some of it with um, my sisters, but I, I don't remember there being a, a sort of a real catalyst for, for support then. And I think what I did is I, I began to chase adventure. That's what I did. And I, I went traveling um, sometime after that, a year or a year and a half after that. And that was all mixed up with, with grief. You know, my dad died when I was 20. And I, I, I went on an adventure. I just put myself in a very unknown situation. Uh, and for me, that was uh, getting a, a flight to, to Bangkok and not knowing what was going to happen after that. So that's how I handled it. I, I sort of almost changed my outward facing circumstance and um, took a leap of, I don't know it was a leap of faith or just um, recklessness uh, mixed with a sense of adventure or wanting to get away from it all or escapism. So I, and, and maybe something to do with, it doesn't feel like I'm doing something with my life, I'm going to do this and this is something worthwhile. And it may also to be do with, um, this is what the Wongs do. You know, my dad left Hong Kong to come and work in um, in England as he came of age. And I guess in some ways I followed in his footsteps. And I certainly know that my son has done the same. I'm really moved by that idea that when you were struggling with that crisis of masculinity as a young man, you spoke to another man about it first, instead of kind of drinking through that problem or kind of sleeping through that problem or whatever those more 
dysfunctional ways of dealing with problems might have been. I'm really, really moved by that fact you immediately went to conversation with another man. And really, really interested by that notion that your way of coping with something massive, like the loss of a parent, was to uh, inherit that parent's way of dealing with something massive, i.e. to uh, travel. If you don't mind me asking, can I ask about that journey to Bangkok and if it did help, if that kind of external external change of circumstances help you deal with internal changes in circumstances? Yeah. Well, I think what that did, it totally changed my environment. And it was also quite a transient and a daily changing environment of people and circumstance. It was also, I was actually heading to Hong Kong. So that was my intention was at somewhere along the line as a pilgrimage back to, to Hong Kong. And I, I, up until then, I'd not um, been to Hong Kong. Yeah, it was just, I, I actually it was around self-worth. I just thought traveling would be a good thing to do. And um, stepping into in the unknown just had an appeal. And what I found was, is that I could almost remake myself uh, from day to day. I didn't have the circumstance of of established social relations relationships that that may have may have sort of helped you know kept me in a certain way of, of behaving or being. And so I also got to meet, or, or no, although fleetingly, lots of different people and could almost evolve myself and evolve my way of being. And it was also a test. I wanted to test myself. Can I do this? And I actually gained a lot of confidence, not just around being able to look after myself, but also being able to engage with, with people and to and had some pretty expansive conversations. And I think it was really quite a stimulating uh, time for me back then. And different cultures as well. You know, I'd, I'd grown up in England as a, as a um, of mixed race. I already had insights into um, not just the English culture, but that which I gleaned from my dad. So um, there was just something around, yeah, just, just noticing that everyone does it a little bit differently, you know, depending where you go. And that was just a stark contrast as I went to different countries and moved to different continents. Can I ask how it felt kind of first uh, landing in uh, Hong Kong and thinking, right, I've gone from distrusting people. I've gone from having quite a certain identity defined by this relationship to embracing that idea that a man isn't necessarily something fixed and defined by having sex with women anymore. But it is defined by that idea of being able to shapeshift every day. How did you adjust to that uh, mentality? I think the nature of sort of backpacking through Southeast Asia, it allowed me to form relationships but not get too close. And it, I, it allowed me to form close relationships knowing that they were already limited by circumstance and time. And I remember connecting with... with, with and that was a safe way for me to connect. It was a safe way for me to explore... And there was something quite alluring around perhaps, you know, you know, if someone's traveling in Southeast Asia, then there's, I guess there's, you know, there's a good chance they've also got a sense of adventure and are open-minded in a way. I think traveling in Southeast Asia, you know, did that for me and for a lot of people I came across. So it was a way to connect and have something in common. And there you go, a sense of belonging, 
you know, the identity of a backpacker in Southeast Asia, um, which seemed to, yeah, which, you know, the whole race thing, of course, was just thrown completely out the window. Any sort of um, stickiness or any influence of like class or or whatever that may exist uh, in, in England. It, it just sort of was just thinned out and diluted over there. Um, and I enjoyed that. I I thought, well, if I can just keep this initial feel, it's a bit like a drug, really. If I can get this initial feeling, just keep that going, this is satisfying, it will be all right. But what I noticed was that I would have quite serious ups and downs, and I sort of recognised that, and it was quite difficult, and I was I was chasing chasing the high. I wanted to get that high again, and I guess that was one of the catalyst really for why I continued to travel in my 20s pretty much and work abroad um, was that exploration of, of new places and it was towards the end of my 20s where I realized wow I don't want to travel anymore this, this isn't doing it for me and I really didn't know what to do and it was quite a um, yeah, it was, it was a, quite a dilemma and I would say almost a personal crisis for me well if I'm not doing that then what what what's what where do i go from here can i ask about that kind of personal crisis and how it manifested itself at what point in your life and how you uh, managed to deal with it well i went back home and i settled back into i stayed with my sister or close to my sister and i reconnected with um just a place and and a job in my hometown where i grew up and actually also and with my first um girlfriend actually we 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 reconnected she'd also come back from travels so that was an important time and then after that I yeah was sort of directionless so so and and I think when I got a call from a friend who said well look you know do you want to come and work over here again and it was in um in uh, in Switzerland in one of the ski resorts there um you know I was flattered because I've been asked and headhunted I said yeah okay I'll come over and um, so I, I just sort of drifted, really, and, and, and just sort of did more of the same, but um, felt okay about it. And I think, well, what happened on that, in that particular, uh, at that particular time is I met my um, future wife and mother of my children there. And that, you know, that's certainly on that cusp of where do I go from here? And I guess it was also probably a reckless and um, certainly lust-influenced um, decision and also um, drug-influenced as well. I was smoking quite a lot of cannabis at that time. I um, decided to, yep, yeah, let's have children. Um, and that was something, the idea of that sort of commitment, that level of well, commitment in a relationship, first and foremost, absolutely terrified me. And I guess it was only through, um, I just, I just sort of went, okay, I'm just, just going to go, I'm just going to do it. It was really, if, I, if I'd thought about it any longer, I th- I'd be fatherless uh, still today. So um, I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of, <laughs> I, I'm glad, I'm glad I um, was able to tap into some, uh, um, a reckless sense of adventure mm-hmm. on that occasion. Mm-hmm. I think hearing that, forgive me, there's that writerly impulse of kind of finding a structure in someone's life. And I'm really moved by that fact of when you felt like you had that crisis of a certain type of masculinity, 
in your 20s, you return to that childhood home, you return to that first girlfriend, you return to that childlike self that we talked about earlier in the podcast. And there's something really uh, structurally beautiful in that gesture, whether it was conscious or unconscious in its action. Can I ask if that process of fatherhood changed your character as a man and changed that dominant characteristic of distrust and almost running away from life, if you like? I think this, you know, the scary thing, it, it wasn't becoming a father because I'd, I'd, um, I just almost knew I'm, I'm going to love my children and be there for them. And I guess that's something my, my dad modelled to me. So I felt quite confident, you know, I had a whole connection, a love connection to my dad. And that, that felt, yeah, just, just pretty straightforward and solid. It was the, it was the committing to uh, one woman, a woman, and also just what was called for in the way of intimacy and closeness in in that relationship and that that was the part it was getting close it was getting close to um uh, to my children's mum that was what the difficult absolutely terrifying bit was uh the emotional um you know how I was challenged to meet my um wife then uh, emotionally and um that was very very difficult and I, I struggled I struggled deeply with that. If you don't mind me asking again, I'm sure there'll be lots of listeners uh, and certainly myself as well who struggles with that sense of really, really close emotional connection with someone else because of, uh, certainly for me, I can't speak for other people, I think growing up in a heteronormative society that tells you you are wrong if you're a gay person, you can grow up feeling a little bit unlovable and that makes relationships quite difficult. So I'd be really interested to hear at this point in my life when I'm trying to overcome all that stuff and kind of reconnect with that child who is lovable and worthy of connection with someone else, how you went about kind of navigating those feelings of uh, uncertainty about connection with someone else and how you were able to forge that positive connection with someone. Hmm. Well, there was one way I did it. Um which I, I wouldn't recommend in the long term, but it might be worth a try just for the experience. And that was brute force. <laughs> it was almost just like, I'm just going to do this. And, um, but it wasn't always, that, that was quite uncomfortable. I, I would say, uh, get, some, get some help. You know, I, I got some help uh, from an older man. It was professional help, but he was very personally, very much into it and personally committed to, um, the type of work we were doing together, and that was an absolute godsend, an absolute, you know, I carried that relationship with me for for many years after that. I internalised that relationship, and just the sense of honesty, uh, straight-upness, um, commitment, and um, authenticity, and generosity in that relationship and just permission giving and that that was that was just amazing just to hear from someone it, it's okay it's okay to feel it's okay to be where you are and also to be really clear like I don't think you know I don't agree with that sort of behavior that's not on you know it wasn't um there wasn't collusion that wasn't the aim of the relationship. It was about just being real, straight up. And and he was genuinely interested in supporting me in my life. And that was the beginning 
of, of a very welcome, and, and I'm very grateful for that, that happened, um, journey into emotional, in, into, you know, into my um, emotional development, you know, in being able to feel and it being okay. It was amazing. I think up until then, I had struggled to even talk about my dad without breaking down. I would just, you know, that was also part of it. I was racked with grief. So on top of um, feeling mistrustful and not really knowing how to express myself or men should do that and really keeping um, those feelings to myself all bottled up and just the pressure of the grief just waiting to to be honoured and expressed, that was such a welcome episode um, and, and also just to express some of the feelings um, in my relationship at home as well. Um, so, you know, if, 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 you know, what if I hear you sort of asking, you know, what does a, a man in his late twenties struggling with uh, connection and love? And is it okay to love a man? Is it okay to be loved? Am I lovable? Yeah. Talk, talk to people, <laughs> talk to, 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 you know, to, to other gay men, to other men, to other women. And, um, I guess to understand that, um, yeah, I, I guess understand your own humanity you know, and, and also be ready to hear from people. Are, are you ready to be vulnerable and hear that um, you, you're loved and why they might love you and why they might not love you? What bits they don't like? I think that's also important to, to hear. I think otherwise we begin to develop ideal, idealised relationships with people and uh, or with our partners where they, they turn into the, uh, in, into the parent who loves us in an undying way which uh, um, is, is, I think, at times uh, too much to ask and a lot of pressure for the other person. I think that's great advice. Thank you so much. I think it's worth sharing this as well for listeners of the podcast that over the course of doing this, uh, I befriended someone who we spoke to on here who is a counsellor and therapist who is a gay man. And uh, I've been very, very reluctant to have therapy uh, for all sorts of reasons, mainly of my own creation in terms of putting those obstacles in my way because I was scared of growth. But that person has become a therapist and has started to help me work through things. Uh, so that wouldn't have happened without these podcasts and these conversations. So I'm just, again, there are so many positive things to have come out of these conversations. But I think personally, that is one of those things that I will take away from it with absolute relish, that I've forged that relationship that you had with that uh, person in your life that was so advantageous for your growth and it feels already that that relationship I've forged with that person um, is going to be incredibly advantageous too. So to uh, bring things to the present day can I ask about your relationship with masculinity and identity now? You know what I'm learning and, uh, and you know still continuing to need to learn is that um Yeah, you know, the the big opening part which has helped me sort of grow and step beyond myself is realising it's not just all about me and really recognising that that's sort of a a childlike um, uh, worldview and, and, you know, and rightly so, as I I mentioned before, but also limiting. And what I'm finding is, is actually, for me, manhood's around it's not just about me, it's also for others. And it's not just, you know, I, be, I began to learn, of course, when, as I had children. But I think even if I didn't have children, you know, there would have been a different step to sort of begin to realise this. But there's something around 
that when I'm in in service or I'm doing things in the world because it's not just for me because you know my, my time will, will pass uh, sooner than, than others uh, my children and the younger generations to come that there's something in there that it what, what it does it gives me the freedom to be the absolute it gives me a freedom to shine, basically. It, it gives me a freedom to be really good at what I do and bring out all that I have to offer the world because it's more than just about me. And what I found was is that if it's just all about me, it's like I, I'm quite easily um, satisfied and then I, I give up if it's just about me. <laughs> but as I sort of face outwards and look out into the world... I can, uh, there's this, you know, never ending tasks really um, that will we'll probably never get done. We'll also always need attending to, you know, in, in society, in our communities around the planet um, and, you know, and all that's going on here. And I would say, you know, what I'm learning about, you know, masculinity is, is um, don't be alone with it. You know, you don't need to do it by yourself that it's it's okay for me not to be perfect it's okay for me to reach out for support it's okay for me to be vulnerable and to and to to know that yeah i've got lessons to learn and at the same time as all of those things that it's okay for me to be to be magnificent if you like to be really good at what i do and to show up brightly um and uh, with with intent and integrity in this world, and there's there's some joy in that. There's a joy in in that permission. And I guess for me, you know, on a personal side, it just if, if I'm stepping up, and because it's it's more than just about me, it just it bypasses any guilt or shame um, that I might feel around uh, just looking after myself. And there's something around that as I begin to sort of outpour um to what i consider the greater good um it's almost like as that flows through me it it, it goes somewhere I, i'm not just sort of stacking it up in my own personal um coffers of uh, self-esteem or, or, or wealth actually it's being passed on but what i get from that is the the joy of of um of being that way does that answer? Yeah, oh my goodness, absolutely it does. I think that's full of gold. Uh, I just love that idea it's okay to be magnificent. I don't know about you, but I find so much of masculinity um, as a construct is about playing small and blending in with the crowd and not standing out because you don't want to be ridiculed for not being a certain type of man. I love that gesture that kind of you've learnt to be magnificent or to kind of own moments of magnificence that aren't selfish, but for that sense of, helping other people that demand that that demands that you step up i just think that's really really great yeah. insight and advice yeah there's something else in there and it's something around you know permission to fail but also to you know to fail well or fail magnificently and i, I remember I, I i worked in germany for a while as a landscape gardener and i just recently qualified and i was on building sites and my my boss my, my boss came to me and he said to me mr wong because I was costing him money because I was trying to get everything done perfectly on the building site. And he said, Mr. Wong, he says, um, 
um, you will make a mistake today in the work that you do here. Um, he says, I don't want to see the mistake, but you will put in a mistake in your work. And <laughs> that was so good to get permission. I think what what it was is, you know, don't you don't need to be perfect, but permission to make a mistake. And I guess, you know, if if um, the offer of inviting advice is still there, it, it would be, um, you know, I, I dare I dare you and I, and I dare others to 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 make a mistake uh, at least once a day in your lives. I think um, there's there's got to be room for that if we are to, uh, you know, also be magnificent um, at times in our lives. Yeah, I love that. I think one of my favourite quotes from anyone is from Samuel, the playwright Samuel Beckett. I've got a friend on my desk when I'm talking to you now. It says, "Fail again, but fail better," and I just love that gesture. Uh, so, yeah, as a final question, if you'd be kind enough to uh, tell listeners how they can get involved with your organisation, A Band of Brothers, um, should they wish to reach out. Yeah, there's many ways to support A Band of Brothers. So um, there's one way is as a mentor. So if you are in a place in your life where you're looking to to, to help others and contribute to um, a better community in your local area, um and you know get get in touch with banner brothers um see if there's a community up and running where you are um if not um you know we're open to conversations around what you know what it takes to set up a community around the country um and you just need to get in touch really and there are other ways of, of getting involved so that is uh, fundraising so there are many opportunities to get involved in events, um, set up direct debits, um, or, or like yourselves, uh, you know, set up podcasts, uh, write about the work we're doing, spread the word of, of masculinity and how men can be a force of, of good and um, in, in this world. And you know, that's really around what Abana Bobs is about, is, is helping, helping men to be positive agents of change, really, in their communities. Oh, and also, there's another thing, something really, really important. If, if if anyone's got a spare twenty to thirty uh, uh, acres of land, um, uh, we're looking we're looking for our first rites of passage centre, where um, we can sort of call a home. Really, um, at the moment, we've been renting um, adventure and outdoor centres. So if anyone knows of a um, sort of a, uh, a disused golf course or, or something similar, uh, some farmland where we could uh, set something up, we'd love to establish a permanent rights of um, pasture centre. I believe it would be the UK's first. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, here's hoping we have lots of farmers or golfers listening and they can help you find that land. It feels like that's a really apt place to end things thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you at uh, james wong thank you very much yeah thank you james thanks for inviting me on and really appreciate the um yeah just the the, the care and consideration you've given to um you know listening to me and also framing your, your questions that you have today thanks a lot thank you so much Thank you for listening. This has been Mantor, the Masculinity Conversations, brought to you by me, James McDermott, and Story Machine Productions, with music by Jordan Mallory Skinner and produced by Sam Ruddock. 
We're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity. If you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.